Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 21st. Up first is Richard Sturzberg, writing on the vague identity behind Canadian content, the comparisons between Canada and other countries like the UK on producing TV shows, and why we should care about this issue in Canadian media production. For decades, Canadian content has been defined as whatever Canadians make. The definition is based on a 10-point system that counts the number of Canadians employed making a TV show or movie. If enough Canadians are part of the production, it is Canadian no matter the content. This allows movies and TV shows to qualify as Canadian, even if the stories, the characters involved, and their settings are not recognizably Canadian. They can be completely disguised to make them look, in almost all cases, American. There is enormous pressure to do so. Both Canadian producers and broadcasters like to see American financial participation in their films and TV shows. It increases the fees producers make and the production quality of the projects. The problem is that the American market is the most parochial in the world. Americans are by and large only interested in stories about themselves. The solution, therefore, is for Canadian producers to make Canadian content that does not refer to its country of origin. The resulting shows look, feel, and smell completely American. Nobody watching them would ever guess that they were Canadian. This has been a problem for a long time. When Flashpoint became the first Canadian series sold to a major U.S. network, CBS, in 2008, there was much self-congratulation in the Canadian production community. Unfortunately, although it was shot in Toronto, the city was never identified. Even the police uniforms were sanitized. They simply said, police. The arm patches did not say, Toronto police with the crowns and maple leaves that indicate the different ranks. It appeared to be utterly American. More recently, the most lauded show in Canadian history, Schitt's Creek, was made by well-known Canadians, financed with Canadian subsidies and commissioned by the CBC. Nowhere in any of the episodes is there any reference to Canada. Like Flashpoint, Viewers would think that it was an American show made for Americans. This is problematic. It makes it impossible to establish Canadian TV and movies as a desirable category. The Danish, the French, the Israelis, and the British do not disguise their origins. They have all created recognizable national brands that are attractive to both viewers and buyers. But if nobody knows that our films and shows are Canadian, it is impossible to build a category brand around them no matter how good they are. Besides, surely the whole business is a little embarrassing and undignified. Making shows that deny their origins is like a colonial servant, aping his masters, hoping that he will be taken as one of their own. Abasement can only lead to humiliation. Every year the Canadian government spends about $1 billion subsidizing Canadian content. This is over and above the amounts that the provinces spend and the money that goes to the CBC. Ottawa does so as a cultural policy. It is, of course, nothing of the sort. At best, it is an industrial policy designed to aid Canadian companies and employ Canadian creative types. 
As part of the government's Bill C-11, the so-called Online Streaming Act, the CRTC will be reviewing the definition of Canadian content. Its consultations will begin this week. It hopes to be able to produce a definition that is consistent with requiring Netflix, Apple, Amazon, and Disney to invest in Canadian content. For their part, the streamers should be happy with the existing 10-point system. They are, after all, even more likely than the Canadian broadcasters to insist that the shows they finance look and feel American. But there is an alternative way of looking at the definition of Canadian content. In the UK, for example, they have a system for defining British content that is completely different from the Canadian one. Instead of a 10-point system based on employment, it has a 35-point one based on cultural considerations. It is, in fact, called the cultural test. Of the 35 points, the first 18 concern whether the characters are identifiably British, whether the program is clearly set in Britain, whether the subject matter is British, and whether it is made in English. A further four points are added if the show is an interpretation of British culture and its history of diversity. Only eight of the 35 points are based on employment. The UK system pretty much guarantees that when a TV program or film is made with British taxpayers' money, it looks, feels, and smells like Britain. There is no evidence that the UK cultural test has disadvantaged British talent. The country's writers, directors, and actors are in demand throughout the world. There is also no evidence that the system has reduced British cultural exports. The most recent UNESCO study shows that while Canadian cultural exports, the bulk of which are TV shows and movies, are falling, the UK's are rising. Britain exports $256 per capita of cultural goods, while Canada exports only $44 per capita down from 79 20 years ago. The British insistence that their taxpayers' money be spent on productions that are culturally British is paralleled in other countries. Similar rules apply, for example, in Italy, Australia, New Zealand, and Germany. It is important to change the definition of Canadian content to a cultural one, not just for reasons of national pride or to keep the streamers in line, but also because it is what the Canadian public wants. In the most recent survey done by the Canadian Media Fund, Canadians said that their number one priority for the redefinition of Canadian content was to make people proud of being Canadian and to contribute to nationhood and national cohesion. That will be impossible if the production industry continues to make ersatz U.S. shows. How can Canadians be proud if they don't even know that the productions they are paying for are Canadian? This is an existential danger for the Canadian production sector. If Canadians are not convinced that the money, their money, that Ottawa is pouring into Canadian films and TV makes them proud, they may well ask, why bother? And if they ask that, a future Canadian government may well reply, why indeed? That was a commentary by Richard Sturzberg. He was the executive vice president of CBC Radio Canada. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. 
He is writing today on the news industry and the parliamentary committee, how MPs understand the role of business and news media, and what politicians should ultimately do when dealing with market development. One of the more bizarre developments on Parliament Hill in recent weeks is the current parliamentary committee hearings into the appropriateness of government support to the national news media to hold a national forum on the future of the industry. The study's basic purpose is seemingly to determine whether politicians should instruct and fund the industry to hold a conference about itself. The origins of these hearings date back to late last year. During a meeting in December, members of the House Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage debated and ultimately agreed to a motion in favor of studying this question. By coincidence, I appeared before the same committee on the day of its approval. For better or worse, it gave me a unique vantage point to observe the discussion, including the ideas and arguments in favor of such a study. The whole exchange was a bit surreal. It exposed the extent to which a lot of members of Parliament have both inflated conceptions of the role of government and superficial understandings of the role of business and markets. The idea that a parliamentary committee ought to determine whether a private industry should hold a conference, including its terms of reference, ostensibly reflects some combination of arrogance and ignorance. There are hundreds, and quite likely thousands, of national, provincial, and local industry associations across the country. Many of them hold annual conferences. Some may receive public funding to defray the costs, but virtually none rely on a parliamentary study to determine whether to host a conference in the first place or what they ought to discuss. Those decisions are typically made based on the best interests of individual companies and the industry as a whole rather than the diktats of a parliamentary committee. Conservative MP Rachel Thomas spoke in response to the motion saying, I don't believe it's appropriate for this committee to determine whether or not it would be appropriate for stakeholders within the national news sector to hold a forum to talk about their own challenges and to resolve their own issues. I think that's their determination. Her perspective, however, was a minority one. Most MPs seem to think that the industry is somehow unaware of the challenges that it's facing and requires an impetus from Ottawa to respond to these developments with greater urgency. The National Forum therefore represents an opportunity for politicians to tell heedless news media executives what's actually happening. MP Martin Shampoo's comments on the traditional media business model needing to be revamped and the committee study itself convey a basic misunderstanding of a market economy. Its genius is rooted in its self-regulating profit and loss system. The former rewards successful risk-taking, the latter punishes excessive risk. As long as companies are subjected to these two sides of the capitalist coin, they ought to have sufficient incentives to respond to the market trends that the committee has identified. Companies that innovate in the face of these developments will be rewarded with more readers and profits. Those who don't will face contraction and possibly closure. The process will be decentralized and instantaneous. There's no need for the parliamentary committee to study it or render post hoc judgments. Markets will do the work for them. The committee hearings themselves, in fact, reflect the inherent problem with government subsidies. 
as the state's role in a sector increases, it invariably leads to a growing presumption about the efficacy of politics over markets. Although in hindsight, news media executives have made a lot of bad decisions over the past several years, there are few reasons to believe that MP Shampu or his parliamentary colleagues have a better understanding of the commercial interests of their companies or the industry itself. Should the news media industry hold a national forum? Probably, it may be a good opportunity to share best practices and discuss common concerns including forthcoming online harms, legislation, and its potential consequences. But these decisions shouldn't require approval or funding from politicians. The industry can surely decide itself whether to hold a conference. More importantly, it ought to decide itself how to deal with broader market developments. Politicians should aim to extract themselves from that process. It will ultimately be better for both journalism and politics. That was Sean Spear appearing in today's Hub, and as part of the Future of News series, he is the Hub's editor-at-large. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.